Good evening, everybody. Um, we're going to start off with something else today, and then after that, have our regular teaching. Okay? Because I received an email from somebody who um, was requesting that I talk a little bit about the craziness that is going on in the country. Um, uh, I mean, it's been going on for a while, but, uh, you know, recently because of the leaked Supreme Court draft decision that would overturn uh, Roe v. Ro v. Wade. And so everybody's like, some people are applauding, and uh, but those are also saying, how dare it be leaked? And other people are freaking out and saying that uh, it's going to, uh, the next step is they're going to take away a lot of our other uh, privacy freedoms. And so there's just like more than the usual. <laughs> and the usual is pretty plentiful the, these days. So somebody wrote and asked for uh, to talk about it. So I will. Let me find the email. The email, email is quite long, so I won't read the whole thing. It's about one of our friends. I think he lives in New York. He's a therapist, okay? And uh, he's asking if I would say something that might be helpful about uh, the likely overturn of the abortion law and how to navigate this all-worked-up nation and world. And so he says, from his viewpoint, compassion is the antidote. And I completely agree with that. Um, you know, whatever side people are on, their basic motivation is they want to be happy and they don't want to suffer. So if we can tune into that basic wish, you know, and ignore for the time being all the verbiage and name-calling and hostility and animosity and just tune in to, you know, what's really going on in people's hearts. I want happiness. I don't want suffering. And everybody has a different vision of happiness, a different way of thinking about the causes of that happiness, a different uh, idea of what suffering is and what the causes of suffering are. And so we get, uh, uh, you know, linked into our thoughts, you know, and regardless of whether our thoughts are right or wrong, when we're attached to them, because they're my thoughts and my way of thinking, then, uh, you know, anger, upset, name-calling, hostility, and so on, easily follow from that, okay? So if we can see that mechanism and have compassion for the people who don't see that mechanism and think that the cause of their misery is what other people are saying and doing, you know, and then blaming them and so on, uh, you know, that 
kind of compassion is is quite good. It doesn't mean we stay silent and we just let everybody act out their anger and be crazy. You know, we do what we can to to help them. Um, you know, remain not remain because they aren't there yet, but to get calmer and more open minded. At the same time, knowing that we can't control other people. And when people get very worked up, their minds are not very open. And that includes us. When we get very worked up, our minds aren't very open. So in this kind of thing, we have to protect our own minds and make sure that we don't get all worked up about all of this happening. Okay. Having ideas, you know, wanting to see some things happen and other things not happen, That's fine, and we have to have those ideas. And as Buddhists, we want to put forth ideas that have to do with ethical conduct and compassion. But I really want to stress the problem is when we get attached to our ideas because they're ours. Okay. Um, So (laughs) he made an interesting comment. Civil discourse seems to be a thing of the media museum history. Yeah. Everybody now seems ready to fight. And then, you know, this isn't limited to the U.S. You know, it's going on all over the place. And um, fighting is not the right path, yet people are always ready to fight. Isn't that interesting? Fighting gives us purpose. I'm against something, so my life is meaningful, and I'm going to get all worked up and be against something and stop this horrible thing. Yeah? And so it gives us very much a a feeling of being alive and having purpose. But it's really a very false sense of purpose because we're not thinking very clearly. Okay. and, she, and he's also saying what he thinks is important is deep listening. Can we learn to listen to the vulnerabilities and fears of others? Yeah, To really listen without interrupting, without saying you're wrong and you shouldn't feel that way. And then he, he said something quite interesting. Uh, okay. So he said, I'm in a privileged position to work with people of all political backgrounds and beliefs. He's a therapist, yeah. I've worked with perpetrators, victims, and bystanders. Bystanders. These groups include military members, elite academics who are highly preoccupied with gender pronouns, (laughs) Refugees fleeing the very wars the military often exacerbates. Immigrant agricultural workers and white working class individuals who feel betrayed by the gender pronoun focused elites. Okay. In listening to so many disparate groups, I get to touch their common humanity and hearts, see beyond their fear and rage, even though some of their views are different than mine. This is a blessing. I belong to no group which 
uh, is both lonely and liberating. Yeah, you don't need to have an identity in the mess. Okay, moving in between these worlds allows for spaciousness, which increases the capacity for empathy and expands the heart. So there is a strange freedom in this. Yeah, it's actually quite an understandable freedom. Yeah, when we drop the things that we're attached to and just open our mind to the feelings and situations of other people uh, and have an attitude of kindness and compassion towards them. So he he was saying that um, my voice has been, you know, he said, I personally find venerable children's insights incredibly calming. In my life, she has become the voice of reason, which always eases my anxiety and confusion and has, you know. So he was asking what my ideas are on this. So now you're going to hear my ideas. I mean, I completely agree with what he said, but I want to add two other things. One is I think it would really help all of us to lighten up a little bit and not take everything so seriously and make everything like the end of the world scenario. And I think also if we develop more generous hearts and, you know, had a generosity of heart that is displayed you know, even by giving people physical things, you know, material things, uh, because that can often bridge and reconnect people. You know, if you aren't getting along with someone and you give them a present, they they stop and they go, oh, that person, you know, they they care about me in some way that they're giving me something, Okay. So let's think of all the different parties in the commotion that is going on in the country right now. People from different classes, different races, different religions. People obsessed with pronouns and people not obsessed with pronouns. And think that... uh, All of them simply want happiness and not suffering. And wouldn't it be wonderful if they could have that happiness and not have suffering? But... Bringing that about entails knowing what the causes of happiness and suffering are. And then creating one and abandoning the other. And that discussion of causality will lead us into a discussion of emptiness the ultimate nature. Which is what will 
get involved in this evening. And so with a compassionate attitude towards all these beings, let's engage with the teachings and try and understand them and put them into practice as much as we can. So another part of Eric's email that I read to you at the beginning of the teaching um, is he he's saying that everybody is angry now and everybody has a bone to pick and is upset about something. And everybody feels that they have the right to stand there and scream about it and blame others for causing it and blame and cry out to others to recognize their own pain. So you have a whole huge number of people all screaming out, you know, I want happiness, I don't want suffering, please acknowledge my my pain. But Hardly any of them are acknowledging the pain of the other people. Yeah, everybody's so involved in their own pain, how they are left out, how other people ignore them or mistreat them, that they're completely blind to the fact that they are doing the same to other people. True? Yeah, it's true, isn't it? And it's quite sad that that's going on because everybody just gets deeper and deeper into their own anger, into their own feeling of not being accepted, not belonging, not being heard, not being cared for. And as people get deeper into that and scream louder about that, that much more they ignore the pain and suffering of other people. Yeah. So you'd think that when people are suffering... You know, very often suffering leads us to open our heart towards others because we realize, hey, you know, others are just like me. They're going through this too. Uh, and opens the heart to compassion. But now it seems like it's opening, it's closing the heart to everybody else. Yeah. So our job is to do the best we can, to be generous, like Buddha Bear showed us, and to lighten up a little bit and learn to play, which Buddha Bear also is modeling for us. And not be so intent every time where we talk to somebody with telling them, what I am angry about 
and what I am suffering from. And, you know, kind of try and see, hey, that's what others are experiencing too. Okay. So there was a question that came in from last week that I wanted to answer to the group. And it says, thinking of the example of the thermos on the table, remember last week, as a beginner, is it more helpful to start with deconstructing the thermos to try to find the inherent existence of the thermos as it appears to my mind? Or is it more helpful to start with identifying the dependent arising of the entire scene, the table, the parts of the table, thermos, my body and mind, etc.? Is there a sequence that is recommended? Okay, so here the person is talking about using dependent arising as the reason to prove emptiness and to use emptiness as the, the um, not the reason, but the complement of dependent arising, okay? So putting those two things together so that they come to the same point. Yeah, so which, uh, yeah, you're putting two sides of the coin together, so which side do you start with, okay? In general, um, it's good to start with the cause and effect side because it's very easy to misunderstand emptiness and to think that because when we search for something, ultimately we can't find it, that nothing exists. And that's a big problem if we come to that conclusion. Whereas when we have a very robust understanding of cause and effect, you know, and we can see uh, how cause and effect operates on all levels of our life, then when we meditate on emptiness and we can't find something's ultimate essence, we don't go to nihilism so quickly. We, we remember that there's cause and effect and that things function even though they lack inherent existence. And in fact, if things were inherently existent, they couldn't function at all. Okay? Why? Because inherent existence means something that is totally independent of all other factors, totally unrelated to everything else. Whereas in our world, you know, everything is related to many other things. Okay? So if we look at the thermos, you know, in terms of parts, the thermos has sides and a top and a bottle, bottom, and it has some kind of, I don't know, stainless steel inside, you know, and a color on the outside and a rubber thing up here. And somebody made it, and people, you know, invented, I don't know, was this metal here? People invented the color, they mined for the metal, you know, they, they went 
to the uh, to rubber trees and tap the rubber trees to get the the rubber. Um, so there's lots of causes and conditions going into creating this, and when we really focus on the causes and conditions and pick them all apart, yeah, then in the middle of all of those causes and conditions, can we find something that was the thermos before it existed? Okay, or... Amidst, amidst all the causes and conditions that the present thermos becomes for what it's producing in the future, can we find a, a thermos in this accumulation of causes and conditions? And, and can we find what it's going to produce in the future? Okay, is that hidden inside here? So... Uh, you know, when you really go deeply into cause and effect, it, it challenges you, especially, like I mentioned last week, to, to sit there and, and ask yourself or say to yourself, I exist only because the causes and conditions of me existed. I exist only, only. There's no other thing that makes me exist except the causes and conditions. And none of those causes and conditions were me. So I'm composed of a bunch of things that aren't me. Because it isn't like there was a person in the past, yeah, that inside that past person was me, and I popped out of that past person. Yeah. And in the of all those causes and conditions through which I was born, none of them are me. Yeah. So none of them are me, and also. None of those causes and conditions are mine. I say my body, but what about this body is mine? Yeah, the genes and chromosomes came from my parents. Yeah, then I ate a lot, you know, I had baby, baby milk and I had applesauce, Gerber's applesauce. Remember Gerber's applesauce? And Gerber's bananas, and huh? Mushed peas. <laughs> Mushed, <laughs> mashed peas, mushed peas, yeah. And then all the food, all the PB and G sandwiches we ate, yeah. All the cookies and and sweets we snuck as kids, <laughs> and it's amazing we grew up to be healthy adults when you consider what we ate as kids, yeah. I don't eat this. Give me potato chips. Yeah. I want chocolate. And once in a while when we, you know, manage to act like Popeye. Yeah, remember Popeye? Yeah? 
with his famous can of spinach, which he whipped out whenever he needed extra strength. Yeah, Did they have Popeye in New Zealand? Yeah, and olive oil? Yeah, that was his wife. Olive. Olive oil, yeah. Yeah, also in Singapore, huh? Wow. Okay. So, you know, Popeye and olive oil played a role in us growing up to be adults because they modeled what to eat. Yeah. That's why our parents let us watch cartoons, because otherwise we wouldn't need our spinach. Okay? So when you really look, so many causes and conditions, but none of the causes and conditions are the result. All of the causes and conditions have to cease for the result to arise. Okay? Now, if some people believe that there's predetermination, that everything's predetermined, if you think like that, then you're actually thinking that the result is already in the cause, in some kind of unmanifest form, and then it manifests. Because it's predetermined, it was there, and it's just waiting to come out. This is actually very close to the view of the Samkhyas, the ancient uh, Hindu school, which said that there is this primal uh, substance or fundamental substance out of which everything arises. Okay? If you believe in predetermination, yeah, then you go the other way. Well, if everything's predetermined, it was there inside of its cause, waiting for something to make it come out. And it had to come out at some time because it was predetermined. Okay? So this thing of the cause, the result exists in the cause. And that's what the Samkhis say, you know, everything emerges from this primal substance, so everything exists there inside of it. Hmm? But check up. We, we read what the Samkhis believe, and we say, that's kind of strange. You know, the grapefruit, I mean, if you say that the result exists in the cause, then the grapefruit exists in the grapefruit seed. But the great, how's the grapefruit going to fit inside the grapefruit seed? It's much bigger than it. Well, you know, and then you think of this itty-bitty grapefruit. But the grapefruit's there, you know, and it's ready to come out and it's predetermined. You know, who you're going to meet in your life is predetermined. That person Somewhere, you know, that link somewhere inside you waiting. Boom. Yeah. But that's, you know, that's just like the Samkhya's. The grapefruit is inside the grapefruit seed. All, all pre-planned, ready to come out. Okay. So uh, 
when we get in in the next section here, we're going to be talking about the different ways in which cause and effect work and how cause and effect don't work. And by doing this, it uh, really helps us to realize emptiness. So in response to the question, we usually start building a, found, a strong foundation about causality and dependent arising, and then use that uh, to meditate on emptiness. But there's many, many different ways to meditate on emptiness, okay? Dependent arising is one way, but there's many others as well. Okay, so let's start reading. We're on the top of 210. Okay, so Aryas of the three vehicles. What are the three vehicles? Hearers or Shravakas. Solitary realizers, bodhisattvas. Okay, those are the three vehicles. So, aryas of the three vehicles who wisely understand dependent origination are free from doubt about the past, present, and future. They do not dwell on who they were in previous lives or worry about whether they will exist in the future And if so, as what? They do not fret about who they are, where they came from, and what will happen to them in the future. Why don't they have these worries and concerns? Yeah, there's no self-grasping. So they know that there's no person to worry about. And there's no inherently existent person who existed in the past, who exists now, who will exist in the future. So without an inherently existent person, then you don't have to worry about if that inherently existent person is, you know, what gender they are, what political party they are, whether they're tall or short or happy or sad. Yeah because there's no inherently existent person, but there is a conventionally existent person. Okay, so we're not saying there's no person. We hear the words in Buddhism, oh, there's no self. Yeah, and uh, I've come across this with some people who've written to me, and, you know, oh, well, there's no self anyway, so... Uh, yeah, but no, there is a self, but it doesn't exist in the way we grasp it to exist. Okay, if there's no self, then who's sitting here right now? Yeah, can you say there's no person, there's no people sitting in this room? No, there's people in the room. Are there inherently existent people? No. Are there conventionally existent people? Yes. What's the difference between the two? Inherently existent people are independent of everything else and have some essence or core that makes them what they are. Yeah? Conventionally existent person exists by being merely designated 
on their aggregates, the body and mind. Okay, so there's a big difference between those two. Unfortunately, we can't tell the difference between the two. Yeah, and our, our perceptions, we mix them completely together. Yeah. Okay, all these worries center on the idea of an independent self that persists in the past, present, and future. Okay? So an independent self, a soul, a self with a big S that persists from past, present, to future. There I am. Okay? Those who understand dependent origination and how it functions in the past, present, and future, know that there is no need to posit a self that moves through these three periods of time. In other words, to establish the existence of a self, of a self that, you know, we don't need to posit some concrete thing that existed in the past and went to the present and is going to the future. They know that whatever occurs in the three times is simply due to conditionality. The fact that causes produce their effects and things come into being due to their respective causes and conditions. Factors in the past condition factors in the present. Yeah, factors in the present condition factors in the future. Causal factors are not the same as present factors, but they are not completely disconnected either. So they aren't inherently identical, and they aren't totally separate and unrelated. Yeah, they're not the same. They're not totally different. Through the transformation and ceasing of past factors, the present ones come into being. So the causes cease to make, you know, for the, the uh, results to arise. Through the present ones changing and ceasing, future factors will arise. All this occurs without a findable self who controls the process or who experiences it. So this whole thing of causes and conditions producing results, which again produce more results and more results, there is no self involved in this process. There is no uh, creator being There is no primal substance, no one universal mind. Okay? So there's not a findable self that makes this happen and that controls the whole process or a findable inherently existent self that experiences it. But we say, yes, yes, there is. Yes, yes, yes. If something, you know, a tick bites me or a mosquito bites me, I feel pain. Okay. But when do you feel pain? Mm. Seven o'clock on the sharp. Okay. 
How long does that pain last? Yeah? How long and before it does it last? Does it stay permanent for a while and then change and become the next moment of pain? Yeah? Do you have a moment of pain? And then it's permanent, it abides, and then it changes. No. Yeah? It's changing every moment. So what is the pain that exists this moment to next moment? Yeah? Is there pain that's in this moment that goes and hooks over to the next moment? Is there a self that's saying, this is my pain, and then that self ceases and there's another self that arises and says, oh, this is my pain, to the next moment of pain? Yeah? Is there somebody who says, Oh, pain, you got to last another few moments here. Okay? When you start to examine and try and find exactly what those things are, you can't find them. Yeah? Because there's no inherently existent findable things. Yeah. Now, does that mean if I say, go look for the thermos, you can't find the thermos on the table? Now, okay. There's a thermos on the table. Yeah. Is there a thermos in this object? Is there something in this thing that is a thermos? No, there's no thermos in the object, but there is a thermos on the table. Okay. When we say the thermos is on the table, we're talking about, about conventional existence. Yeah, everybody knows if we say, oh, where's the thermos? Oh, it's on the table. Okay, you don't need to learn rocket science for that. It's on the table. If we say, what is the thermos in this collection of material? What is the thermos? We can't find anything in it that is a thermos. It's just something that came about through different causes and conditions coming together. Okay? So things exist conventionally, but they do not exist ultimately. They exist on the conventional level. They don't exist on the ultimate level. Ultimate here means findable, where you can find something. Ultimate analysis means you are analyzing something to find out exactly what it is. And we can't find anything when we try and find out exactly what it is. This is very interesting to do. Choose a person that 
uh, that uh, you are very, very fond of or a person that you really can't stand. Yeah, one of the two, somebody you have very strong feelings for. And then go through and say, what is that person? You know, here's this person. I love you so much. Who? Who? Who is that person? Yeah. Who is that person? See if you can find out who they are. Okay. So there is no need for a persisting self to hold the stream of causes and effects together so that karmic seeds are carried to the next life. Okay? So there doesn't need to be, you know, okay, here's this thread, and then we string beads on it. Each bead is a karmic seed, and then it goes to the next life, and as this bead falls off, it ripens, and then that one ripens. But there's something permanent here that just goes from life to life. We don't need anything like that. But then how do the things go from life to life? Yeah? Okay. Spend some time looking at a river or go down the hill and look at the stream, you know? And uh, put a leaf in the stream and watch the leaf move. Okay. Is there something that carries that leaf. Now he said, oh, the water carries that leaf. Which drop of water carries that leaf? Uh, does it carry the, do, do the same exact drops of water carry the leaf the whole time? There's so many drops of water that are all going like this. Can you pinpoint one that's carrying the water, the leaf? Yeah. What is the leaf that's getting uh, carried? Is it the veins? Is it the stem? Is it the color? Is it the texture? What is getting carried? Okay. We we can't find anything when we don't analyze. We look and we say, oh. The stream is carrying the leaf, and everybody knows what we're talking about. Yes, the water in the stream is carrying the leaf. No problem. But if we analyze, yeah, can we find something that is unchanging in there that is carrying that leaf or causing that leaf to be carried? Yeah. No, the stream is changing the whole time. Yeah. It doesn't remain the same from one moment to the other. Yeah. It's changing the whole time. When we don't analyze, it looks, we look at the whole, at the, all the, uh, parts and we give it the name stream. 
But then we forget that we gave it the name stream, and we think that there is one stream there in that whole thing. And that one identifiable stream, we think, is carrying all those permanent leaves that float on it. Yeah? Do you think any scientists would agree? Yeah. Do you think any philosophers would agree? No, the whole thing is changing all the time. It doesn't need one permanent thing to, you know, to carry the leaves. Mm -hmm. In the description of the 12 links, uh, if the description of the 12 links initially seems unfamiliar, that is because we have never seriously regarded our lives as conditioned events or thought of ourselves as conditioned phenomena that exist only because the causes for them exist. Yeah, we don't think of ourselves as conditioned phenomena. I'm me, you know? And then we say, oh, but I am influenced, this outer influence, the air that is cold disturbs me. I'm me, I'm permanent, but this air comes by and blows and makes me cold. Yeah. If there were a permanent me that didn't change, could that me be made cold by the wind? It couldn't, because something is permanent does not change, which means you could be in the middle of, you know, Antarctica in a windstorm and you don't feel any cold. But that's not possible, is it? Because we're conditioned beings, we're influenced by other things. As we become familiar with the idea of dependent origination, this will become clearer. Although there is no substantial person to practice the path or attain nirvana. What do you mean there's no substantial person to practice the path or attain nirvana? I want to attain nirvana. I'm practicing the path. Why are you saying there's no person? Well, look for who's practicing the path. Is it your body? Is it your nose? Yeah. Are you your nose? Your nose is practicing the path. Your famous little toe that always hurts, is it practicing the path? What about your eye consciousness? Yeah, which eye consciousness? Uh, is your sleeping mind practicing the path? Oh, yes, I've pri- I'm doing dream yoga. <laughs> okay, what's sleeping mind? What is a sleeping mind? Yeah, find it. So you see, you look, you keep looking. 
Although there is no substantial person to practice the path or attain nirvana, a strong determination will arise in us to be free from cyclic existence, and this will propel us to cultivate the path of the Aryas as a means to attain liberation. So there's no person who practices the path, but we generate the determination to practice the path, and we practice the path. Okay, so the reflection. Review the explanation and quotations that refute the existence of an inherently existent person, self, or soul that is reborn. Yeah, look what happens when people die. Yeah, what, what do people say? Yeah. Where where did you know uh yeah uh, Beatrice where did Beatrice get reborn? Yeah. Beatrice just died. Where did she get reborn? Okay. And with we have this idea of there's something that is Beatrice that is going from this life to the next life. And we want to know where that something that is her landed. And then we think we can go there and like, hi, Beatrice. And Beatrice, you know, who's been reborn as a, uh, a bear, says, <laughs> and we say, oh, give me a big hug like you used to. And the bear gives us a, a bear hug. Yeah? And instead of long fingernails that are painted red, she has claws. <laughs> yeah? Do you get a sense that there is not a permanent fixed person that is you who goes from life to life? But we say, what am I going to be reborn as? And that's the first, you know, the initial scope, caring about my rebirth. If it's my rebirth, there must be a me that's reborn. Where will I be reborn? What was I before I was born here? You know, we say the word I, and we think like there's something findable, concrete that doesn't change, that is you know, the essence of meanness. Despite your not existing in that way, you still exist and function. The absence of an inherently existent person and the conventional existence of a dependent person are complementary. Hmm. Okay, so then there's a new section, the ultimate nature of the 12 links. The Buddha spoke not only about the conventional functioning of the 12 links, but also about their ultimate nature. The conventional 12 links describe the way that we are born repeatedly in cyclic existence and the way to reverse this process. The ultimate nature of the links and of the cycle of samsaric rebirth is empty of inherent existence. That, 
Okay, so things can conventionally exist without ultimately being findable. If the 12 links existed inherently, they could not form a causal chain where one link produces the next. Why? Because something that exists inherently cannot be, is independent of everything and cannot be influenced by any other factor. See, the Arya Ratana Kara Sutra says, how could something with inherent existence arise from another? In other words, from another thing with inherent existence. Thus, the Tathagata has presented causation. Yeah, if one inherently existent thing can't arise from another inherently existent thing, then how do you explain causation? Or do th- are things not caused? Do things just happen without cause? Seems like sometimes they happen without cause. Every day we have a plan for the day and then something happens to interfere with our plan that wasn't in our plan. So that thing just happened without cause. Yeah. I mean, what do we do when something we don't like happens? Why me? As if, you know, there's absolutely no cause to it. Why me? You know? Why me means that there should have been a cause that affected me, but I I don't see any cause. Why did this happen to me? It just happened out of nowhere. Things are totally random. Yeah, it's a chaotic universe. And everything that happens is just random, that's all. Because if there's not a controlling self or a controlling God, then the only other thing is that everything's out of control. If there's no controller, everything's out of control. It happens without causes. So you see how somebody who is an absolutist who falls to the extreme of absolutism, which means that they uh, grasp at inherent existence, and somebody who is a nihilist, meaning that they grasp at non-existence, those two seem to have totally opposite viewpoints. One's holding inherent existence, one's saying, forget it, nothing exists. Actually, they're both based on the same uh, assumptions, which is it's got to inherently exist. The absolute, you know, absolute says it's got to inherently exist. Why? Because if it doesn't inherently exist, then it doesn't exist at all. And the nihilist says, see, I told you so. Yeah. So it's got to inherently exist, otherwise it's not going to exist at all. So some, so some fall on the side of, yes, it inherently exists, and then others say, no, it doesn't exist at all. And both of those are incorrect. Okay. Of the two extremes, they, the first one, 
you know, the extreme, the absolutist extreme, grasping inherently existent, that one is the cause of our samsara. But actually, the worst of the two extremes is the nihilistic extreme, because with it, if we fall to that extreme, we deny cause and effect. We deny karma and its effects. And then ethical conduct goes out the window. And if we don't keep ethical conduct, you know, we, we are like fastly zooming down that slippery slope, you know. The link's causal dependence is the reason establishing the emptiness of inherent existence of samsara and of a person who cycles in it. Okay? So the, the 12 links are causally dependent, and that is the reason showing that samsara doesn't exist inherently and that there's no person that cycles and inherently, no inherently existent person that cycles in it. Okay? Because if the 12 links were not a causal chain, then how does one life emerge? If there's not a cause, previous links, then how come we're reborn? Or how come tomorrow exists? If there's no causes, how can tomorrow exist? Speaking of causal dependence in the Sutra of the Enumeration of Phenomena that is called Discerning the Divisions of Existence and so forth, that's quite a title, the Buddha said, okay, there are three defining characteristics of dependent arising. One, no arising from a divine creator's thoughts. Okay, there is no creator of the universe. There is no God. There is no managing somebody who manages the uh, the universe who created it and manages it and made things happen. And if you really think about it, if you think that there must be somebody like that, yeah, then ask yourself, why did that person create? And why did they do such a lousy job of what they created? Why did they create suffering? Yeah, you start just asking kids, like I think most of us, uh, asking questions, like most of us did as kids. Yeah, and we expect the the adults to tell us because they believe that this creator God exists. But when we ask those questions, uh, yeah. What are we told? What are we told? God has his own reasons. Okay, but he can share those reasons, can't he? 
Yeah. I mean, we can tell other people our reasons for, for doing things. Or the, I heard another one as a kid or as a teenager. God was lonely. And did you hear that one? Huh? Yeah. So he was lonely, so he made Adam. Yeah. Then he, he made Eve too, right? Adam what? Oh, Adam was lonely. So then they had Lee. Eve. <laughs> and then, did Adam and Eve have babies? Yeah, who made those? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh dear. Okay, so that's one of the three defining characteristics. Yeah, in India, they said uh, Ishvara or Brahma were the creators. Yeah, so it's the, the same idea as God. Yeah. Then the second is um, arising from multiple impermanent causes. So there's three defining characteristics. So not arising from a creator, but arising from multiple impermanent causes. So it's not just one cause. Yeah. I'm really sorry to tell you, but you cannot make everything go wrong. Yeah. As much as you thought that breakup was your fault, I'm sorry, it's from multiple impermanent causes. Yeah, we cannot claim to be so powerful that we are the ones that botch everything up. Mm. And then the third defining characteristic is arising from a cause that has the capacity to give rise to that effect. Okay, so we think stealing is the cause of wealth, you know, Ex doing white crime stealing, extorting money, you know, cooking the books. We think that is the insider trading, trading, you know, we think that is the cause of wealth because. You do that, and then you have a lot of money. Yeah, according to the law of karma, you're having a lot of money is not the karmic result of your embezzlement or your insider training or whatever it is. Yeah, that the actual result of that action is going to be poverty in the future. Okay. So we don't. We have a hard time identifying which uh, cause the the result has to be concordant with the cause. In other words, that cause has to have the ability to produce that effect. Yeah. So actually, cooking the books doesn't produce wealth. If you wait for the karmic effect, it's going to produce poverty. And 
even in this life, you might get arrested and the money taken away from you and even spend a time, a period of time sitting in, in the prison. Yeah? So even in this life, it doesn't necessarily bring happiness. But you embezzle thing, and then you countersue. You know, somebody's investigating. The New York uh, district attorney is investigating your business and to see if, if you declared everything appropriately. And what do you do? You know, you countersue and uh, accuse the, uh, the district attorney of, you know, lying and falsifying things. Yeah. So it actually gives you more headaches. Maybe you got the dough, but the dough gave you headaches. Yeah. They say that Trump has had, what was it, 4,000 uh, suits, been invol involved in 4,000 legal things. Because whenever he, he is accused of something, he countersues. You know, because then it gets all bottled up in court, and then eventually the other person gives up or the time runs out or whatever it is, and he doesn't have to experience the, re you know, the result of his behavior in this life. Quite amazing. Quite amazing. Yeah. Okay, so those three causes, not arising from a divine creator, yeah, but arising from uh, multiple impermanent causes. And the it has to arise from a cause that has the ability to produce that effect. Asanga echoed the Buddha's explanation of these three principles of causal dependence, saying, one, the world did not come into being as a result of prior intelligence or an external creator. Okay. But, you know, what's going on now is like people just make causal statements that are, you know, I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene's thinking, what was it that was the effect of the Jews in the, in the spaceship? The forest fires. Yeah, the forest fires we had last year was because they were beaming down what were they beaming down? Something that caused the forest fires. Okay, so is that an actual cause of forest fires? Is it a concordant cause? Does it have the ability to produce forest fires? Yeah, but nowadays you can say anything and somebody will believe it. It's actually, when you really think about it, it's not just nowadays. Yeah, snake oil didn't just get invented. It's been around for a long time. And conspiracy theories are as old as I won't say what, because somebody will get offended. But, um, you know, we live in a world full of misunderstandings about causality. So no wonder things get so screwed up. Okay, so 
the Sangha's first thing, the world did not come into being as a result of prior intelligence or an external creator. Two, it did not arise from a permanent cause, because something that is permanent cannot change, so it can't produce a result. Three, it did not arise from a discordant cause, in other words, from a cause that does not have the ability to produce that result. Okay, so, you know, I'm sorry to disappoint people, but drinking Clorox will not clean, you know, cure your COVID. Yeah, that is a, a discordant cause for curing COVID. Yeah, as is uh, Iver, Ivermictin, did I say it right? And a hundred other things that are, you know, proposed. The Rice Seedling Sutra adds two more characteristics of, of uh, causal dependence. So the, the fourth would be it arises from existing causes. So the causes have to exist. It can't, something can't arise from non-existent causes. Okay, yeah. And uh, five, it arises from selfless causes. So from causes that are not inherently existent. So Nagarjuna, in the verse commentary on the Rice Seedling Sutra, said, external dependent arisings arise neither from self nor from other, nor from both, nor from time as a permanent agent. Similarly, they are not created by Ishvara or another deity. They are neither produced, uh, they are neither products of a principal nature, not primal nature, or are they causeless. They come from a succession of, of causes and conditions that stem from beginningless time. Okay. So that, you know, that's quoting the Rice Seedling Sutra. We will get into um, the, uh, this argument We'll do a little bit briefly from it uh, in this book, but when we get to volume eight, then we go into depth in it because this is um, that verse, which is actually um, on page uh, 213, is quoting the Karikas, uh, the treatise on the middle way that Nagarjuna wrote, and it's the first verse in the first chapter. And he just, in four lines, goes, boing! And then everybody's discussing this for centuries afterwards. Okay, so we'll stop tonight. Um, any questions or comments? Nothing? Okay, then we'll dedicate. <laughs>